This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The mission of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, VA, was born from the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and orphan. The Veterans Health Administration, VHA, embodies the promise of a grateful nation in the form of the quality of care that veterans have earned through their service and sacrifices Although the covenant with veterans is immutable, healthcare evolves, and so must VHA. In the late 1990s, VHA evolved from a hospital-centric model to become a delivery system, offering exemplary, measured performance in a range of healthcare settings. Today, the triple aim for better health, better care, and better value represents the aspiration of all health systems. In contrast to the private sector, in which the payment models limit the ability to address health other than as derivative of care delivery, the breadth of VA and VHA services offers the ability to address health in the broadest sense of well-being. This means that VHA is ideally positioned for another transformation. VHA can evolve from an organization around provider functions to a truly integrated network of services organized around veteran needs. What are the strategic priorities of VHA? What is VHA doing to improve its organizational performance? And how is VHA promoting a positive culture of service? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health, the Veterans Health Administration at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. So, Dr. Shulkin, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Also joining us from IBM is Mark Newsom. Mark, welcome, as Thank always. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Doctor, can we start off with some basics? Uh, would you provide an overview of the history and mission of the Veterans Health Administration? Well, the Veterans Health Administration is actually a long history. It actually started with Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, where he committed to a responsibility of the citizens of this country to take care of those who born the battle. And it really is that original statement by Lincoln in his second inaugural address that is on the side of the building of VA and something we see every day when we walk in the doors, our commitment to take care of those who have served our country. So operationally, um, how is VHA organized, the services uh, it provides, the size of your budget, number of folks who work with you, and um, its geographical footprint? Well, something that I'm not sure everybody realizes, the VA is the largest integrated delivery system in the country. It's the only system in the country that has the responsibility for delivering care to every nook and cranny of the country 
where a veteran lives, even if we don't have healthcare facilities. So we have the responsibility not only of providing services in VA medical centers, but in providing services in the community and working with community healthcare organizations to make sure veterans get what they need. Our budget annually is approximately just for healthcare about $65 billion. We're the second largest government organization, only following uh, the Department of Defense in size and scope. We have in the health administration about 330,000 employees and uh, over 1,200 facilities across the country. So it's a very big national organization. You've provided us with a sense of the large organization. Perhaps you could tell us more about your area and specific role. What are your responsibilities and duties under the, as the Undersecretary for Health at VA and the leader of the Veterans Health Administration? How do you support the overall mission of the VA? Well, as the undersecretary, I really am the chief executive of the health administration. Um, and it's traditionally been a physician who has led the health administration. Uh, the role of the undersecretary is a complex role in that it is a political appointee. So there are many aspects of the role to make sure that we are advocating both the strategic direction but also the resource needs that we need with members of Congress and certainly with the White House. There is a component of the organization that is a operational component as a chief executive running an organization this size, making the decisions that are necessary to provide the type of quality of care that we need to serve veterans. And then there is a component of the organization that's really identifying and addressing the needs of its 330,000 employees to support the staff that have the tools and resources that they need to deliver the care to veterans. So, you know, regarding your duties and responsibilities and the breadth and depth uh, of your efforts, what would you say are your, say, three top management challenges that you've faced in your role, and what have you sought to address those? Well, when I came into the role, um, and again, this is something that uh, people may not realize. Uh, it took a year to vet me and to get my confirmation uh, first uh, vetted so that the president nominated me and then secondly to get confirmation from the U.S. Senate. So I had a long period of time in which to think about what I would do coming into the organization. And so I had, as an outside observer, reading the newspaper and listening to the coverage, I had established five priorities, thinking that when I got into VA, I would learn and see what really happened inside the VA and probably change those priorities. But as it turned out, I didn't change a word of them. So I've been maintaining my focus on five priorities that are important to essentially transform the VA healthcare system. The first is is to fix the access issues in healthcare, the real crisis that led towards um, where VA faced itself when I came into the organization, making sure it could provide uh, good access for veterans who needed its help. The second is to focus on the employees and to make sure that they felt passionate about the work they were doing and they had the tools that they needed. And this uh, was a big challenge and still remains a challenge for me in finding the right leaders to step up and to lead my healthcare organizations around the country. The third was to transform VA from being separate VA medical centers to actually acting as a integrated enterprise across the country where we take best practices from one VA and make sure that they're spread throughout the country. 
The fourth was to work with our community providers, those that are academic affiliates and those who help us by providing care in the community, to form an integrated network with VA, what I call a high-performance network, where we can begin to start having seamless transitions of care between VA and the community. And the last and most important is really what I call our currency. Since we don't operate with a stock price and we don't operate by financial gains, our currency is really the trust of those that we serve, of the veterans. And clearly, in the wait time crisis that happened in April 2014, we lost a lot of confidence and trust. And so it's really my objective to build that trust back up with our veterans. You mentioned your challenges, along with challenges you've encountered. Leading the effort under your charge can also be fraught with unanticipated or unexpected surprises. Uh, To that end, what has surprised you most since taking on your current role? Well, I, I think what has surprised me most is actually how much of the system really works well Um, the passion and commitment of our employees and staff. Uh, Many people have an impression of government workers going home at 5 o'clock and just, uh, you know, putting in minimal effort. There's nothing further from the truth. These are some of the most dedicated and committed professionals that I've ever had the chance to work with in my career. So that was one of the pleasant surprises. I think the uh, complexity of the organization and our interface with uh, the requirement to get so many legislative changes to get things done was somewhat of a surprise. Um, I think that we've been fortunate in that we've had the support of both our House and Senate leaders in doing what's right for veterans. But as everybody can see, it's a challenge for for the legislative branch to get things passed through Congress as well. So it's been uh, slower than I'd hoped. I know that many people share that. Uh, I think that we're headed in the right direction. I'm pleased with the proposals that we've made, but I'd certainly like to see us move uh, these changes quicker through Congress. So, uh, Dr. Shulkin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Maybe give us an overview of your career path. What brought you to your current role? Well, I'd like to think that uh, everything that I've done in my career has in some way prepared me to take on this role because uh, this is clearly a very challenging role that requires uh, not only an understanding of healthcare, but an understanding of how policy is developed, an understanding of how to transform large organizations. And uh, I do think that I draw upon each of those skill sets that I've learned from different parts of my career. Uh, I'm an internist by background. Uh, I still uh, continue to see patients. I've always felt that that is an important part of helping me do my job better to to understand what the frontline staff are facing. And so um, I view myself primarily first as a physician and second as an administrator or as a leader of an organization. Following uh, my training in internal medicine, I got advanced training in health outcomes research uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So I tend to look at things in a scientific point of view. I'm very focused on outcomes of healthcare because that's my foundational training. Uh, I went on uh, early in my career to be the University of Pennsylvania's first chief medical officer at a time that physician leadership was just really beginning to enter into the administrative parts of healthcare. And I felt strongly that if you didn't have a physician's voice or a clinician's voice 
in the development of the way our healthcare system was moving, which was clearly more towards um, developing utilization controls and developing outcome measures and quality metrics that uh, it was very important to have that voice in those decisions. So I started my career along a management tract and uh, uh, had an opportunity after leaving the University of Pennsylvania after a decade to start a startup company. Uh, so I moved into my basement, much to my <laughs> wife's chagrin, uh, and started a company. This company was the first in the country to try to take quality metrics and translate them to consumers so that consumers could actually pick doctors and hospitals based upon quality, not upon costs or other issues. So uh, I had my experience as a startup entrepreneur and then went back into healthcare as a uh, academic, uh, actually became chairman of medicine and dean, vice dean of the medical school, Drexel University, and then uh, ultimately was offered my first opportunity to lead an organization, the CEO at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, which was a great experience to have your own organization to set the strategic direction. And then most recently, I was the CEO of Morristown Medical Center in northern New Jersey when I received a call whether I'd be willing to come in to help out the VA. So, you know, with your unique position as a physician, as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, uh, what are the characteristics in your mind of an effective leader? And what leadership lessons have you learned that you've brought to the VA culture? One of the cultural challenges of VA uh, and one of the realities that we face being in a crisis is that um, VA had to change the way it was doing business. And one of uh, the attributes that I bring, of course, is, is that I'm coming from the private sector. So many of the ways that, B that VA had been doing business, uh, I had the opportunity to take a fresh look at it with a set of new eyes. And so um, part of the leadership lesson that I've been bringing is, is that um, what's happening within government, what's happening in the VA is actually not that different than what's happening in the private sector. And what I remind people is if there's a hospital CEO who's not completely reevaluating their business model and looking at doing things differently, they're not going to be in their jobs long. And we in government have to think about it the same way. So we have to be looking at the private sector and seeing what practices and changes they're making and then bring that into VA. It may be translated slightly different than if you're in the private sector, but ultimately changing to be more accountable for outcomes and results is something that is uh, you know, a seamless uh, fit between whether you're in government or out in the private sector. Leadership is multifaceted. Uh, I've had the great fortune of being able to work under many great leaders. And I like to think that I've picked the things that I've liked and disliked about each of those leaders and tried to bring them into my own style. But the essence of leadership, I think, is being able to set priorities and a clear vision, and then ultimately to be able to communicate it clearly. So uh, it's very difficult to be a strong, good leader if you're not a good communicator. And the more complex an organization, sometimes it requires the ability to prioritize more and to narrow the message to really be able to get it co to connect with your frontline people. So that's the, that's the essence of leadership. It, of course, assumes that you have good judgment, that you have the ability to see 
both near-term and far-term, to set short-term courses and long-term strategic direction. And it assumes that you understand the business that you're in. But once you do that, I think what really differentiates leaders is their ability to prioritize and communicate. What are VHA's strategic priorities? We will ask Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at VHA, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. The management of the federal workforce, including executives, will be a critical factor in the next president's success. How do we strengthen federal senior leadership, including political appointees and career executives, and enhancing their collaboration? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores this subject with Doug Brooke and Maureen Hartney, authors of Managing the Government's Executive Talent. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Also joining us from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, as we talked about it, VHA embodies the promise of VA in the form of the quality of care it provides. Although the covenant with veterans is immutable, healthcare evolves, and so must VHA. To that end, would you highlight your strategic vision for VHA, and what are some of your key strategic priorities? Yeah, yeah, I... I I think that there's a series of uh, imperatives that we fix in VA, like making sure that there's appropriate access for healthcare. But when we start talking about strategy, um, I think that it's a little bit different. One of the most frequent questions I get is, what, why do we need a VA healthcare system? Why not just voucher it out? You know, the why not let the private sector take care of veterans? And I have to tell you, I came into the VA, being from the private sector, very much with a um, with an open mind on that question. I didn't come in with a perspective or a bias. But after I began to understand what the VA healthcare system does and began to practice in the VA healthcare system and seeing the types of veterans that we take care of, uh, I clearly believe that it is imperative that we keep a VA healthcare system. And the reason for that is, is that the model of VA healthcare is not just taking care of physical needs of patients. It is a very complex, holistic approach towards healthcare that includes not only the physical aspects, but the social aspects, the psychological aspects, the economic aspects of healthcare. So if a veteran comes in and they don't have a home, they're homeless, it's very hard to provide good healthcare and good well-being for a veteran. So we provide ways for veterans to find homes and to get them housed. If uh, veterans come in and they don't have clothing or jobs or medication or um, they need caregivers to help them in their homes, these are all ways that VA defines the way that it delivers healthcare and meets veteran well-being. And so the model of healthcare is very different. And I think that's one of the reasons why VA meets the needs of veterans and wouldn't be uh, as easily fit into a private sector model. 
But there is a role for the private sector in providing care to veterans because VA shouldn't be doing everything in every situation for veterans. So I use the example of maternity and women's health care. Our fastest growing segment of veterans are women. And now with the Department of Defense decision to say that women can serve in every role, including combat, we're going to see more women with more severe injuries. And so when a woman gets pregnant, I don't believe the VA healthcare system should be developing maternity floors and neonatal intensive care units. I believe those services exist well and are done extremely well in the private sector. So VA has to find a way to begin to start seamlessly working with community healthcare providers. And where we can't provide the services because our waits are too long, we need to work with the community providers as well. So my strategic view is we need to develop what I'm calling a high-performance network, selecting those community providers with the very best outcomes as our pure way of selecting our providers and therefore, we can assure that veterans are going to get the very highest health care quality that the country can provide, whether it's in VA or outside VA. So, you know, as a follow-up, what, um, what persistent internal challenges and maybe external pressures have you faced that have shaped and informed your strategic vision? And more importantly, what are the guiding principles that are supporting your efforts to transform VHA? Well, one of the ways that I collect information about how to make the right strategic decisions is by actually listening to our veterans. And we are very fortunate in that we have organized groups of veterans. Many of them belong to what we call veteran services organizations. People know them as the American Legion, Veterans of Foreign War, Vietnam Veterans of America, Paralyzed Veterans of America, for example, where we are in regular contact with them and the veterans that they serve about whether we are addressing their needs and whether our ideas are good ones to pursue. And so the underlying concept on how we're making these changes is really to be veteran-centric, not government-centric, not healthcare-centric, but veteran-centric. And to drive an organization that is meeting their needs is really what we've launched an initiative called My VA, because we want every veteran to feel this is their VA. And in order for us to be able to meet their needs, we have to be listening to them. You mentioned my VA, and Secretary McDonald has has launched that initiative as a way to transform the VA into a high-performing organization. Can you tell us more about this effort and its key objectives? How does it align with the efforts outlined in your blueprint for excellence? Well, the secretary comes from a background of the private sector as well. He was the chairman and CEO of Procter & Gamble, and he knows that you can't have a high-performing organization if it isn't listening to its customers and being customer-centric. And so what the secretary brought to us was this type of perspective and created an office called the Veterans Experience Office and created leadership commitment to addressing veterans' needs. Clearly, the VA wouldn't have gotten into the trouble it was getting into if it really had been listening to its customers and being veteran-centric. VHA, or the Health Administration, has developed its own set of priorities that interfaces very closely with the VHA to address the five priorities that I've already listed. And so what you have is a confluence of the Health Administrator's priorities interfaced with the My VA priorities to create a veteran-centric atmosphere or environment. And uh, you have leadership commitment at the secretary's level and at my level 
that really is driving the organization towards that type of cultural transformation. And does it, just as a follow-on, does that high-performing organization concept include both uh, VA and the network as well in your blueprint for excellence? Yes. uh, The Veterans Administration actually has three administrations. The health administration that I run, there is a benefits administration where people get uh, financial benefits if they're disabled or or require other types of benefits. And then there's the national cemeteries. And uh, VA has traditionally operated in a very siloed environment. Under the secretary's leadership in the My VA initiative, we are looking at this more as a integrated enterprise because that's the way the veterans look at the VA. Certainly. Let's talk Commission on Care for a second. Congress established a Commission on Care charging it to examine veterans' access to VA health care and to examine strategically how best to organize the VA, locate health resources, and deliver health to veterans during the next 20 years. Can you tell us more about this effort, what you've learned from the insights on the Commission's final report, what recommendations are being pursued? Yeah, the Commission on Care was uh, set up by Congress and, and the President to provide recommendations on where the VA healthcare system should go in the future. It was actually uh, composed of uh, a number of leading healthcare executives um, and composed of people who understand the VA organization and it focused specifically on the healthcare uh, mission of the organization. It was a very um, well-debated commission in that you heard all sorts of perspectives, people who felt that maybe the VA should be vouchered out and people that felt that that was the wrong decision. In the end, the commission reached a consensus and it said that the VA healthcare organization is absolutely necessary for veterans and for America, that the VA system needed to be kept intact and strong, but that the VA needed to make some transformational changes in the way that it operates. And it gave 18 recommendations. Uh, 15 of those 18, the VA feels are absolutely the correct recommendations and actually have already begun initiatives and efforts to undertake them. Some of them are longer term and will take a while to accomplish, but we we are absolutely supportive of these recommendations and think that the commission did a very good job of uh, defining what's going to be required for the success of the VA. Three of the recommendations uh, we did not agree with, uh, and our response actually was the president's response. So I should probably say it correctly that the president <laughs> did not agree with it, and uh, the VA is um, is is advocating uh, for the 15 that we think are the right things, and the three that aren't, we're giving our reasons why we think that they're not. You mentioned absolutely essentiality, and without a doubt, there's perhaps no agency of the federal government with more noble mission than the VA. What are you doing to promote a positive culture of service throughout the enterprise? Well, uh, we're doing a lot of things. And as I said, we already have a workforce that is a very committed workforce to this mission. So this is not uh, something that we have to rebuild. It's something that we have to reinforce and, uh, frankly, is motivating when we do reinforce that for those who have chosen to come to the VA. We're doing a number of things, uh, the most important of which is is that under the secretary's leadership, we've launched a program called Leaders Developing Leaders. This is where we're taking our leadership off-site, spending the time personally with them, that is the secretary, the deputy secretary, myself, and other leaders, personally training these top leaders, 
and recommitting to the mission and then having them cascade this leadership training down to the people who work in their organizations. We've now trained over 90,000 people in our organization with a commitment to value-based leadership and principle-based leadership. Traditionally, the VA, like many government organizations, has been rules-based. And uh, uh, we don't believe that there are many high-performing organizations that are rules-based. High-performing organizations tend to have principles and values and adhere to that and allow their leaders to lead in the way that supports those principles and values. And that's what we're putting in place and training people in that way of managing. So actually, uh, doctor, I um, was wondering, just to pick up on that with the leadership a- effort there, um, what else are you doing to improve staff and employee morale? Number one is we're trying to listen to our employees. I try to do this uh, physically as much as I can. I got back late last night from a trip to Phoenix where I spent every time I make a visit, I do a town hall forum where I try to hear from employees, hear from union leaders, hear from veteran services organizations, congressional members. So trying to do as much listening as we can. But with an organization as big as this, with 320,000 people, I can't physically visit them all. So we've established uh, what I call the Facebook of VA. We happen to call it VA Pulse, where it's an open forum for people to be able to share their ideas, uh, not only with me, but with one another, to be able to um, get some of that active listening going on and sharing of ideas. Uh, I have been doing uh, virtual town halls. My last town hall, which I did from one of our VAs, this one in Baltimore, is simulcast to every VA in our in our country. And we take uh, active questions from the field. We had over 10,000 uh, sites listening, hopefully multiple people at each site. So we're trying to reach as many people as we can and be able to have the communication be bi-directional. So communication listening is certainly part of it. But we're beginning to uh, take these ideas and actually implement them. So listening to our clinicians, uh, one of the things that they've said to us is is that uh, the electronic medical record has too many alerts on it. It's They're spending so much time answering alerts that they're not spending time with their veterans in the amount of time that they want. So we're looking at that and we're giving clinicians now more options to select which alerts are helpful to them and deselect which ones aren't. So uh, making the changes to make it a better environment, I think, is uh, ultimately the proof in the pudding, um, whether you're really listening or not. Yeah, and part of that is the management and business processes that you're engaging in. So what is being done to increase operational effectiveness and accountability? We are primarily investing in the training of our leaders. Uh, When you can't find strong and competent leaders to run your organizations. I don't think you have much of a hope of putting into effect effective systems and effective accountability. So uh, we have been really focused on getting our empty leadership positions open. Since I've been here, I have filled 55 medical center director positions. That's a little bit more than one a week. I still have 32 openings of my medical centers without permanent leadership in place. And without filling 32 of my major medical center positions, uh, I'm not able to assure the success of these initiatives. So I really am primarily focused 
on finding the right leaders, making sure they understand the values of the organization, the objectives of the organization, and then for me to help support those leaders in accomplishing their goals. So I, I really like to talk to you about, you know, the VA is better positioned than any other health uh, healthcare system to sort of adopt or realize a contemporary approach to health services. So how is VHA promoting a transformation from a model of providing, say, sick care uh, to a real health and care model? Well, prior to coming to VA, I was involved in developing and launching an accountable care organization, one of actually the largest in the country. When I came to VA, what I realized is it is the largest accountable care organization in the country. It actually has a commitment once you leave the service till the rest of your life. And actually beyond that, that's why we have a national cemetery service. And so uh, we have everything that it requires to be able to provide the full scope of services that population-based health organizations and accountable care organizations do. And of course, a large focus of that is to do prevention and uh, to provide what I've described before as this holistic approach towards healthcare, that many of the determinants of well-being and health uh, relate not only to what we call physical health, but the economic and social and psychological health. And so so we're really uh, focused heavily and have been for some time on prevention, on team-based approaches to care, on home health care, on uh, caregiver support, on many of the things that you're not seeing as well distributed in the private sector because they don't have the same financial uh, incentives that we do. Our only financial incentive is to do what's right for veterans, and that allows us a lot more freedom to develop what I do believe is really uh, the uh, gold standard of population health, and that, that occurs today in the VA healthcare system. What is VHA doing to improve its organizational performance? We will ask Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at VA, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The management of the federal workforce, including executives, will be a critical factor in the next president's success. How do we strengthen federal senior leadership, including political appointees and career executives, and enhancing their collaboration? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores this subject with Doug Brooke and Maureen Hartney, authors of Managing the Government's Executive Talent. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Also joining us from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, uh, Doctor, the Veterans Integrated Systems Technology Architecture, also known as VISTA, which is VA's electronic health record, has robust capabilities, especially clinical applications. Uh, what is the VISTA Evolution Project, and perhaps you could highlight some of the accomplishments to date and what's next? The VISTA Evolution product, uh, Project is uh, trying to take our current state of where our electronic medical record is and transforming it into a system that is better prepared to meet the needs in the future. And so when we developed our electronic medical record called VISTA, we actually have 130 different versions of VISTA. So every one of our medical center regions has customized it to meet their local needs. 
When I talked about one of my priorities was to get VA to function as a single integrated enterprise, this is a good example. Uh, in our electronic medical record, we have functioned in 130 different silos. And that has limited our ability to meet the future needs of veterans because where healthcare is going today is it's using its data and allowing us to do analytics and to do practice changes in a single platform. So Vista Evolution is allowing us to take those 130 versions and convert it into a single version of Vista to allow us to meet the future needs of healthcare. Let's talk interoperability. VA and DOD share millions of health records between the systems today. Having a veteran's complete health record from both DOD and VA, as well as the community providers, is critical to providing seamless, high-quality access to care and benefits. Firstly, would you provide a brief definition of interoperability in that context and outline key challenges to interoperability you face? And then secondly, what has the Joint Legacy Viewer done to further interoperability between VA and DOD? Well, in April of 2016, both DOD and VA certified that we have achieved interoperability. So, definitionally, we have met interoperability. We have done that through what you've referred to as the Joint Legacy Viewer, which means that if a veteran comes to us in VA or somebody is at DOD, we have the ability to view each other's records through a joint viewer. And so we can get access, and we're doing it, as you mentioned, uh, hundreds of thousands of times a year, accessing these records so that we know what treatments have been done in each organization. But these are read-only functions. And so they are not really the full true interoperability that one may imagine, which would be a seamless flow of information uh, beyond uh, only information gathering read-only. And so in order to do that, we still have additional work to do. I think it is one of the frustrations uh, of many. Uh, I hear it mostly from members of Congress who have said, look, you know, you're treating the same population of patients. We know where our future population of patients are coming from. They're coming from DOD. Uh, why, why haven't you guys done this better? And I think that's an appropriate challenge for both the VA and the leaders of DOD to, in the future, figure out ways, particularly as uh, healthcare gets more advanced and analytics get more advanced, uh, for us to expand on our definition of interoperability. So while we celebrate the achievements that we've made to date, I think we still have more work to do. VA has taken multiple steps to expand capacity at your facilities by focusing on staffing, space, productivity, VA community care. Will you elaborate on key efforts being pursued to improve access to care? How does the evolving approach to personalize, proactive, patient-centered care factor into those efforts? Well, as I've probably mentioned several times already, our number one priority, the reason why I largely came was to make sure that we could provide adequate access to care for veterans. And so we've done all the things that you've mentioned. We have uh, hired close to 26,000 new employees in the VA healthcare system since the crisis hit in April 2014. We've expanded 2 million square feet of space and looking to expand further. We've added evening and weekend hours. We have improved productivity as measured by 
relative value units by 10%. Uh, we've expanded telehealth capabilities and a number of different things. But uh, the most significant way that we are committing to fixing the access crisis is by implementing same-day services in every one of our medical centers by the end of this calendar year. Now, same-day services are defined right now as primary care services and mental health services in our major medical centers. And until we can assure that if a veteran presents to us with a problem that is urgent, that we can deal with that, I think we will continue to have access problems. So today, as we sit here, um, we have uh, 56 uh, medical centers that have announced same-day services in primary care and mental health. Uh, by the time uh, that we reach the end of November, that will be up close to 80 of our medical centers, and it will be all of our medical centers by the end of December of this year. So that's one thing that we're doing. The second thing that we've done is we have really focused on clinical urgency of healthcare so that um, what every healthcare organization's uh, priority should be is to match its access with its clinical urgency so that VA may have people who are waiting for uh, routine care, eyeglasses, audiology, dental care, and uh, uh, that is something that uh, unless we're provided with extensive additional resources, we may have waits. But what we can afford to do is have veterans who have urgent medical needs waiting for health care. And that's something that's just not um, – uh, I'm not willing to accept that there are still veterans committing suicide or veterans with urgent needs that aren't being met. That's why we're working to implement these same-day systems by the end of this year. You mentioned mental health and suicides. Let's explore that a little further. Long deployments, intense combat conditions require comprehensive support for the emotional and mental health needs of veterans and their families. Would you tell us more about what is being done to develop and expand VA's mental health system? What are some of the challenges you face in this area? What more can be done to improve mental health care for veterans? Well, there is no other system in the country that has extensive uh, behavioral health care services like the VA. We provided health care to 1.6 million veterans last year in behavioral health. We have um, uh, extensive numbers of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, suicide prevention coordinators, all dedicated to the behavioral health of our veterans. And we integrate behavioral health into our primary care settings, unlike any other healthcare system in the country, so that you don't have to have the stigma of going to a mental health clinic. You can get your mental health services as part of your primary care. And we delivered over 1 million visits in uh, primary care mental health integration last year. We also provided 336,000 visits of mental health using telehealth services. So you can get access to uh, qualified professionals to help even if uh, there aren't local healthcare professionals in your community. So VA is using these unique models of healthcare to help veterans in behavioral health. Having said that, um, we still have far too many people who are going untreated. Of the 20 veterans a day that take their life through suicide, which is a just an alarming figure, something that we're just not uh, willing or able to accept, and we're treating it as a national crisis. Uh, of those 20 veterans a day, 14 of them don't get their care in the VA healthcare system, which means that 
They may be out there isolated, not getting the care that they need. And so we're working hard with community organizations and uh, national groups to try to identify veterans at risk and get them the help that they need in the VA healthcare system because we know that that saves lives. So, Dr. Shulkin, would you tell us more about your efforts to expand the use of data analytics as a tool to drive decision-making across your enterprise? And more specifically, what is VHA doing to enhance its clinical decision support efforts? Well, uh, this is an area that I think that VA has been working on quite some time. And as the field gets more advanced, uh, VA's leadership in this will become clearer. We have a 30-year history of electronic information, and so our databases are quite extensive. And we have been working with analytics to use it to help veterans get better health care. We were just talking earlier about suicide. So one of the tools that we're taking from our research lab into practice this month is what we call ReachVet. It is an analytics tool that helps identify veterans at risk of suicide and we are proactively reaching out to those veterans and contacting them and saying, how can we help? How are you doing? You know, would you like to come in? Are there resources that we might have that could help you? And so that's an example of how we're using analytics, bringing it into the clinical setting and hopefully helping save lives. We are also working as part of the Vice President's Moonshot Initiative to use our data uh, and to use our research capabilities to help advance scientific discoveries in curing cancer. We're actually partnering with IBM Watson to identify uh, veterans' specific genomic sequencing and help target the right therapies to veterans so that they can get the very best possible therapy for their specific tumor. And this is a way that VA not only is using its analytic capabilities, but leveraging with the best technology and the best companies out there to help veterans get better outcomes. So, doctor, as a follow-up, would you tell us more about VA's advances in genomic medicine? What can you tell us about the Million Veteran Program, and how do you plan on working with NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative Cohort Program? When you take a look at, at precision medicine and, and uh, you take a look at molecular type research, VA actually started a program called the Million Veterans Program in 2009. And today, VA has the largest database in the country of genomic material of patients. We have over 500,000 veterans now in our data registry and, and in our storage tanks in Boston. And we are able to match that genomic data with the electronic medical records that we've had for veterans for 25 or 30 years. And we are doing research studies that no one else in the country can do. As part of this, we're actually helping the Precision Medicine Initiative at NIH get launched. Mm -hmm. And so we have signed a intra-agency agreement with the NIH in order to help support them in their Precision Medicine Initiative through the Vice President's Moonshot Initiative. But it's VA today that is leading the country in these types of initiatives. There's a nation of hidden heroes out there. VHA recognizes the crucial role that family caregivers play. They're partners in helping our veterans as they recover from injury and illness. Would you tell us more about the caregiver support program and effort by the VA to support these caregivers? 
VA is unique in its role in supporting family caregivers. Uh, we support currently 23,000 caregivers who are helping our veterans throughout the country. And we actually hope to expand that program. And there are some legislative proposals pending that would allow us to do that. But these are so critical to the health of our veterans. And if it weren't for these caregivers and our support for them, our veterans may be forced to leave their homes and be put in institutions or be readmitted to hospitals or have to have much more extensive treatment. One of our research programs has demonstrated that people who have caregivers at home are able to access our primary care services and our specialty services more, which means that they're getting the care that they need because of those caregivers, and that's preventing them from having to be in the hospital or in other types of institutions. So we believe this is not only the right thing to do for veterans, we actually think it's the right thing to do also for taxpayers because it's the most economical way of providing the support for veterans that is in their homes. If I may, if I may expand on that just a second. So a lot of these hidden heat rules, these caregivers or family members, um, is there consideration given to that population who does not have a family member that's willing to step up to the plate. They're alone, they're single, you know, but they still have the same same needs. Yes, uh, v- VA is uh, recognizing that people who don't have family members still need caregivers. We are providing home health support and we certainly do not restrict our caregiver program to family members. Um, there needs to be that type of commitment to be in the program and people need to qualify that they're willing to make that commitment. But we recognize that there are many people who can play the role of caregivers. What is the Veteran Health Administration doing to advance healthcare innovation? We will ask Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at VA, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Also joining us from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, Dr. Shulkin, I talk to many of my guests about uh, the importance of collaboration and partnerships in achieving mission results. How are you leveraging partnerships and collaboration to improve operations and outcomes at VHA? Well, I think uh, the recognition of going through the crisis that VA has gone through uh, again, starting in April of 2014, 
was essentially a recognition that the responsibility to care for the country's veterans was not VA's alone. And VA can't do it alone. And so it needs to work with those out in the community uh, to partner in strategic ways to be able to meet the needs of veterans. And the example of suicide, I think, is a clear example. The fact that the majority of veterans who are taking their own lives aren't in the VA system. We need to partner with others to reach out to them to get the care that they need. So VA, it's what I call the new VA, has uh, taken this recognition we can't do it alone out to the country and said to every major corporation, every major organization, if they have a willingness, an idea, some way that they can help us fulfill our mission to take care of the country's veterans. We want to be working with them. And so we've announced literally hundreds of partnerships around the country uh, to cement relationships that help us advance health care together to serve the country's veterans. And so um, uh, lots of examples of leading companies. Uh, um, we have them with Google. We have them with IBM. We have them with the Elks uh, Club. We have them, you know, with Home Depot. So, uh, you know, I don't want to leave out important groups, of course. But, but, uh, but, but, but this is a new VA where where uh, we are uh, willing to entertain ideas that make sense as long as they make sense for veterans and taxpayers. VHA has played a role in training America's doctors, clinicians for decades with education and training programs. Could you elaborate a little bit on your continued efforts to build the best technical workforce of the future? What are some of the challenges you are facing in training and education? One of the gifts that was given to the VA back in 1946 by the person then who was leading the VA, General Omar Bradley, was a recognition that if he worked with the country's leading medical schools, that that would be a good thing for veterans and a good thing for the medical schools. And so today, VA has relationships with 1,800 leading educational facilities and almost every major medical school in the country. It's why you often see a VA physically located next to a major university center wherever you travel. And so what many people don't realize is, is that if the VA system weren't here, there probably wouldn't be a way to be training America's healthcare professionals because we train over 120,000 healthcare students every year. We're the largest trainer of medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, social work students, and the list go on and on. And so 70% of American doctors uh, who train in medical schools will get some part of their training in the VA system. I know in my own case, I trained in three VAs uh, during my medical training. And so uh, if the VA system weren't there to provide this type of training, uh, there wouldn't be a supply of healthcare professionals for the rest of the country. And frankly, this is a good thing, not only for the rest of the country, but for veterans, because these students come and they keep everybody who works at the VA sharp and with the new ideas and demanding that they have the best technology. And so this is a collaboration that really works well for veterans and works well for VA and is important for the rest of the country. So, Doctor, you know, going from training and education to research, for over 75 years, VA research has been around and doing cutting-edge uh, work in medical and prosthetic devices. Um, perhaps you could share with us some points of pride in this area. Well, uh, 
again, the VA, besides its great clinical work it does, besides its educational work, also contributes to the country through its research. $1.6 billion a year dedicated solely to research that helps veterans' well-being. There is no other organization that does anything like this. But besides helping veterans, many of the discoveries and research that we do uh, translate into important advances for the rest of American medicine. So the very first liver transplant done in the country was done in a VA. The nicotine patch was developed in, in the VA. The pacemaker, the dialysis machines that keep our renal uh, patients alive, uh, radio amino assays, um, the work that was done that shows that a aspirin a day may prevent heart attacks. Uh, the lists go on and on, three Nobel Prizes done uh, within the VA system, the work that led to antivirals to prevent um, HIV and hepatitis, much of that work done in the VA system. So. Uh, when uh, people talk about the VA system, I'm not sure they realize that if it wasn't for this type of research, we wouldn't have many of the advances that are existing today for all Americans. So, doctor, um, what advice would you give someone thinking about a career in either medicine or public service or both? Well, uh, the advice I give to all people who ask my advice is do something that you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about helping people, uh, I couldn't be stronger in my advice to go into health professions and public service. Uh, for those that haven't had the opportunity to go and to help people and to contribute to the lives and, and improving lives for others, uh, I think that they're missing out on something. So much of the dissatisfaction that I see among uh, many of my colleagues out in the private sector in healthcare is because uh, they are chasing uh, things that really are increasingly difficult, uh, which is uh, their own autonomy and their own financial advantages. And I think that if people go into healthcare for the right reason, which is to help people and to serve, uh, they're going to have great, satisfying careers. Uh, doctor, I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, Mark and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you. It's a true privilege and honor to be able to give back to those that have served our country. And I can't think of anything more rewarding. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. David Shulkin, Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. My co-host today from IBM has been Mark Newsom. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The management of the federal workforce, including executives, will be a critical factor in the next president's success. How do we strengthen federal senior leadership, including political appointees and career executives, and enhancing their collaboration? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores this subject with Doug Brooke and Maureen Hartney, authors of Managing the Government's Executive Talent. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.